This is Your Liturgical Bible, a Bible study series from Enacting the Kingdom. We believe that through community, ritual, and liturgy, the story of the Bible comes to life. Join Father Jeffrey and I as we learn to express the beauty of the biblical story together. King. We're going to talk about that word king, the theme of king. What is a king? Should Israel have a king? Should Israel not have a king? It seems that in the scriptural story, there are actually different expectations of a king, whether a king is good, whether a king is bad. We're going to explore all of that, Father Jeffrey. It's going to be uh, an interesting time. So, okay, that's where we're going to start with these varying expectations. So, you know, Israel, just a quick recap of the whole Bible story, if for those who don't know it, uh, you know, Israel is this people that gets chosen by God. They are in slavery in Egypt. They are rescued by God and brought into the promised land. And then in the promised land, they kind of are given some freedom to rule themselves. And there's some ups and downs with these people who are called judges, who are these sort of, I guess, tribal leaders. You'll probably illuminate, illuminate that a bit more, Father Jeffrey. But then there becomes this, there comes this desire to have a king. And on one hand, it seems that the thrust of the narrative is that having a coming king is going to be a good thing, right? Um, the books of kingdoms, right? First uh, uh, Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings. It's all about the coming of David as a king, all before him, but David as this kind of the greatest king in Israel's history. And then all of these lists of kings who kind of screw things up. But then at the beginning of that story in Samuel, you have that character, Samuel, who actually warns the people of Israel that when you have your king, it's not going to be good. You're not going to really want a king because God is supposed to be your king. And there's this tension, isn't there, Father Jeffrey, between should Israel have a king or shouldn't Israel have a king? Yeah, I mean, we might start with the ultimate answer to that, um, which we have in Messiah Jesus, right? King Jesus, who shows that the whole point is that God himself becomes king, right? There's a wonderful book by uh, N.T. Wright called How God Became King, and which is his way of summing up the whole of the Bible. And, you, and, and ultimately, that's kind of what it is. Uh, I mean, one of the things to, to note about the, the Old Testament is that almost everything takes place during monarchy, right? Um, the And even the, the, the telling of the stories that the people themselves had inherited and everything, they all get written down and, and, and recast during the time of monarchy. I mean, fascinating studies these days of, of books like uh, Genesis showing how much the, the, the themes of the, of the, the, the time of David and Solomon are actually just retrojected back into Genesis. Why is Genesis so consumed with Judah, you know, uh, amongst all of, 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 of the Israelites? Well, because it's of course the, the kingdom of Judah that, that comes to, to prevail and, and last as far as the Babylonian captivity and, and so forth. And so really all of the Bible, think about all the prophets, they're all preaching and proclaiming and, 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 and declaiming, you know, the people during the time of the monarchy and so forth. So the, the whole Bible, really the, the core theme, the, it's easy to miss, I suppose, if you're looking elsewhere, but is about monarchy, is about kingship. And so to sum up the Bible, you know, from a Christian point of view, obviously, is that the, the ultimate point is that not a human being, not a mere human being, uh, but the perfect human being who is God himself 
incarnate in the flesh is to be the, the king. And so some of those tensions that, that you refer to, um, and, and you're quite right. I mean, they're, I mean, as, as the people of Israel are making sense in their scriptures of what's happened to them, right? And so much of the Bible kind of coalesces and is redacted and, and rethought and written down and finally collected around the time of exile when, when the monarchy has ended, right, is going to be about, you know, was it a good idea or not to have a king? And, and the, the themes uh, of a lot of what we call the historical books in, in Christian uh, parlance, but for the, for the Jews are the, the kind of earlier prophets, and, and that's an interesting insight, right? That all of the books about kings, whether it's, you know, uh, the books of Samuel, the books of kings, for the Jews are understood to be prophetic books, right? So it's all about prophecy. It's about saying the truth of God in the midst of historical circumstances, as opposed to just telling a story, just telling the history of something. But they're going to try to sort out why it was that things went so wrong, right? From the vantage point of exile, when Israel finally realized, you know, without land or temple or king, that what they still had was God, and so they're going to try to make sense of all of that. But why did it go wrong? And, and should there have been a, a king in the first place? And you get, you know, the, the whole, um, there's a, the kind of consistent telling of the story um, from the point of view of the author of authors of Deuteronomy, right? And, and which is all about God's covenant and, and faithfulness to that covenant. And, and that's where you get this idea that there could be somebody who turns neither to the left nor to the right, but follows, you know, in the path of God's righteousness. And that person would be a good king, right? But you pointed out, how many of those are there? Even David himself is absolutely compromised because he is an adulterer and he is a murderer. Uh, of course, he repents and there are promises made to him that there will be one of his line ultimately who will will come and will reign forever, that his house, the house of David will be an everlasting house because there will be a son of David, this messianic you know, figure who will will rise up, but he's not one who doesn't turn to the left or to the right. And his son Solomon certainly, you know, spirals into um, chaos, and the kingdom gets divided. And then you get this whole history of you know one bad king after another, outdoing each other, with a couple of very very minor exceptions. Right? You get you know someone like a Hezekiah, who at least under Isaiah's you know influence, he listens to the prophet. You know, is able to to kind of restore some sanity and faithfulness to 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 the kingdom, or probably most famously the the the, the one who is most in keeping with this Deuteronomic idea of 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 faithfulness to God's covenant, which who is King Josiah becomes king at age eight. And sadly lives lives only a short life because he does a few stupid things himself, but at least in terms of covenant faithfulness. And he's the one who they celebrate Passover really for the first time since the days of Samuel. Right. So after 400 years, they um, they restore the feasts, the feasts of, of faithfulness to God, of God's justice, of, of his deliverance, of his salvation and, and so forth come about at the time of Josiah. But it's a brief reprieve 
you know, some 20 years before the Babylonians uh, and Nebuchadnezzar come knocking on the door and knocking down the door and the temple and carrying the people, you know, into, into exile. So that's kind of the end of, of, of kingdom there. Um, but so within all of that reflection, you know, is a king a good thing or a bad thing? Um, ultimately, the prophets will point forward, and the, uh, I say the covenant with David will point forward to one of the the line of David who will be an everlasting, you know, king. This kind of messianic figure. But as to whether Israel or Israel and Judah, the divided kingdom under monarchy, is a good thing, you know, or not, is a debated question. As you point out, Samuel definitely foretelling, you know, the disasters to follow will know that, well, the people come and, and, and ask him, you know, we want a king like the other nations. And there's the king. There, there's the key kind of, um, in a clue to what's going on here. We want to be like the others. Um, the others in all respects, right? So, and Samuel points out, well, you know, if you have a king, you're going to lose, you know, most of your crops, you're going to lose your women, you're going to lose all these things because kings consume, right? Kings take, they don't give. Um, but no, we want to be like all the other nations, the people say. And of course, they become like all the other nations this is the kind of unfolding story. Samuel's quite right. And what does that mean? It means you're going to be throwing your, your lot in with other powers. And when you do that and you form alliances, you end up marrying, you know, the people from, from other uh, countries, they bring their idols with them. And so the worship of the one true God will be lost and there'll be, you know, there'll be uh, prostitutes in the temple as there often are in the time of the Kings. There will be all these high places and other places of worship set up against the worship of the temple. And, and so it's a compromise situation, you know, to, to have a King, the original ver uh, kind of vision in Deuteronomy, we have this in uh, Deuteronomy 17, you know, uh, and, and so it's placed here in the mouth of, of Moses in one of these kind of farewell discourses that he gives and so forth. Um, uh, I'll just read you from verse 14. When you've come into the land, the Lord your God is giving, is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, you will say, I will set a king uh, over me like all the nations that are around me. And you may indeed set over you a king whom the Lord your God will choose. So, so here, unlike from the prophet Samuel, there's this idea that God will, will bless this, right? One of your own community you may set as king over you are not permitted to put a foreigner over you who is not of your own community. So there's the first thing. It has to be of Israel. Um, even so, he must not acquire many horses for himself or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses. In other words, don't be like the other kings who are acquiring and consuming and just building palaces and acquiring horses or making alliances with foreign powers like Egypt in order to, to become wealthy through this process. Since the Lord has said to you, you must never return that way again. Don't go back to Egypt, right? He must not acquire many wives for himself. Well, here's the whole point, right? The, the wives. Yeah, this, this sounds like Solomon. Right. They, they will. Exactly. This is going to go so wrong, according to the very words that are placed in Moses' mouth here. Because, of course, I mean, today, I think we understand that this is a retrospective <laughs> telling of the story and kind of, well, this is where we realized it went wrong. Nobody listened to, to this kind of word or else his heart will turn away. Right. And also silver and gold, he must acquire in great quantity for himself. Don't worry about all those things the other nations are doing. When he has taken the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the 
Levitical priests. Well, who is the one who does that? The one king who does that is Josiah, right? They discover a scroll and he, you know, declares a fast and repentance and says, we must return to this, to this law. And, uh, you know, the thought is that some early version of Deuteronomy is what's in question um, there, but it shall remain with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. This is what makes a good king. He follows the law. He keeps the covenant, keeps Torah so that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, diligently observing all the words of this law and these statutes, neither exalting himself above other members of the community. That's interesting. What kind of king doesn't exalt himself or put himself in a hierarchy above others? This is a very different kind of kingship, right? Reminds me a bit of words in the gospel. Don't be like the Gentiles, lording it over, right? Instead, the one who will be first among you will be the least and so forth. So it's already written here in Deuteronomy, neither exalting himself above others, nor turning aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left. There's this royal path. I know that's a, it's an expression that comes initially from Greek philosophy um, and, and geometry and things like that. But the church fathers pick up on it as this idea is from Aristotle too, right? That, that the, that there's a kind of golden mean here between the extremes. Don't turn to the right or to the left so that he, and his descendants may reign long over his kingdom in Israel. Well, this describes absolutely nobody apart from possibly Josiah, right? Who's just on the cusp of the, the whole thing. I mean, it's long after the Northern Kingdom has been destroyed already, but it's like 20 years before the Babylonians come to destroy Jerusalem and the temple and so forth. So uh, this is the kind of king, <laughs> you know, so you get the covenant with David, uh, you know, because Samuel will eventually, you know, uh, condescend to anointing uh, Saul and then after him, David, uh, who is unexpected, right? Uh, he's, you know, the, the least of his brothers, um, but he will be anointed by, by Samuel and things go wrong with him too, right? And so this all this constant fall, right, as we see throughout the scriptures, it's what Genesis and Adam and Eve are about. It's what, you know, these multiple falls of the patriarchs about. It's certainly what we see again and again with the Israelites in the wilderness. And then when they settle in the land of Canaan, you know, the, through the story of the judges over and over again, they're kind of descending into chaos and so forth. Well, David does that too, but there's a covenant made with David. There will be an everlasting king and it will look more like the king described here in Deuteronomy. And uh, so there's a, a hint of that, you know, in some of the leadership in, in Israel. Um, and it's interesting how, when it comes to Jesus, how he picks up on these various threads, right? So, so Jesus is, um, well, he's the, the new Adam, right? So he kind of is the reversal of, of the, the one who, who, sought the thing that was not given to him, right? He was given every blessing, but wanted the one thing he couldn't have. But Jesus reverses that. But in terms of fulfilling the, these types, he's he's like Moses, right? And the gospel writers want to kind of make that clear, right? So there's infants killed around the time of his death. And, you know, he comes up out of Egypt and he, you know, goes a mountain and gives the law and so forth. So he's, he's the new Moses, but he's the new Joshua too, the one whom Moses appoints and who's filled with the Holy Spirit to lead the people um, of Israel into the promised land. So his very name, Jesus, Yeshua, is the same as, as Joshua. Um but, you know, he's also David, but a, a perfect David. He's from the line of David. He is the true son of David and Messiah. But unlike David, he 
resists temptation, unlike the Israelites in the wilderness. You know, he resists that and so forth. In some ways, he's the new Samuel too, which is interesting, right? Because in Luke, um, the the prayer of Mary on hearing about, you know, the fact that she's giving birth to the son of God um, and to the son of David um, and, and going to, to visit her cousin, she sings this beautiful hymn, the Magnificat um, that we have, which is, of course, the same themes and and almost the same words and phrases as the song of Hannah who is the mother you know of Samuel so so what we have in king messiah Yeshua, Jesus is the kind of coming together of everything that's good about kings, <laughs> uh, possibly good about kings, but never actually fully represented. Little hints of it in Moses, little hints of it in Joshua, little hints of it in Samuel himself, uh, who warns against kings, little hints of it in David, or certainly at least in the promise made to David that from his house would come someone. So kingdom ambiguous for sure never properly executed god who um you know certainly if you read the words of samuel is reluctantly condescending to give a, a king but it's like we said before i think with land right that uh unless you have the concrete idea and 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 kind of manifestation of it the concrete history of it how can jesus be the fulfillment of it right so we can't simply say without any um, hesitation, God never wanted a king in Israel, right? I mean, Samuel comes closest to saying something like that. But but if that were the case, how could Jesus be the fulfillment? How could Jesus be God become king, the one who is the true king uh, of Israel and therefore of all the nations as fulfilled in the promises made to Israel? So like with temple, if Jesus fulfills that and sacrifice, like with land, here too with with king all these things that are stripped from israel and through israel's unfaithfulness and and failure to live up to the covenant all these things are fulfilled in jesus but they were real to begin with it's not just that we were to understand kingship in a purely spiritual way like land was to be or or sacrifice and temple and so forth like as i said before in the earlier podcast that early christians had a tendency to say now it's all true, whereas before it was it was false or falsely understood. I think there is something to be said for real kings and the possibility of faithful kings, uh, which is why you know throughout you know the book of Judges, um, certainly towards the end, you get this phrase repeated again and again and again. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. Well, the whole point is there needs to be a king in Israel. But the thing is, the only true king of Israel is Jesus. Right, right. There's, there's, a, there's a through line, a narrative through line in the scriptures that I'd like to get your take on, because I think it's very closely related, if not perhaps just the same theme as king. Uh, but uh, so um, the first chapters of Genesis, right? Uh, Adam and Eve, they are tempted. They fall into uh, disobeying uh, God. And then there's this curse put on um, the snake, right? This serpent that uh, tempted them. And one thing that's said is that the woman will crush, uh, the, the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman will crush the head of that serpent as the serpent will bite the heel of that offspring. And it almost seems that there's this promise that that serpent, that that thing that was the kind of the deepest evil will be crushed by the head of the offspring of Eve. And that 
and then the book of Genesis continues, and there's a real huge concern of who is going to be the seed of the promise, right? Who is, you know, Abraham and Sarah are trying to have a child, but who's going to be the seed of the promise? And that theme continues throughout. And it almost continues like David, this King David almost seems to be this closest we get to the seed of the promise within the scriptures, right? That he's, he's kind of almost there, but not actually quite there. You know what I mean? And then, and then God says, Hey, if your sons will remain faithful, and this is even in the Psalms as well, if your sons remain faithful, uh, your offspring, right? Will, uh, crush the head of the, the serpent. You will be the, the the ones who are bringing my rule and everything like that. But then, of course, we know through the story of the scriptures that the sons just keep deteriorating and deteriorating until there's just the state itself just collapses. Uh, and then I think the the when the Christian writers come on the scene, when they're recording the stories of Christ, they recognized him as that full fulfillment of the person who's going to crush the head of that serpent. And I think that there's a connection here with kingship, with this idea of that ultimate defeat of the enemy. And and that's also kind of a king kingly way of talking as well, this sort of military king who will come and defeat his foes. But his foes aren't other nations. The foes are the dark powers of this world. And Christ's ministry is to actually come as a king and defeat those dark powers. And that's reflected as well in the Psalms um, that that um, the Lord is king. He is robed in majesty, right? These images of um, God himself being portrayed in the role of the king. And he's actually often portrayed as seated up above the waters, right? Um, that the, even the chaotic waters, the, the craziest, most strong, dark powers of this world even those cannot conquer the will of, of God and the victory of, of God. And Jesus Christ himself is cast in that image. He calms the storms. He calms the waters. He casts out the evil demons and things like that and confronts those evil powers. So I, I, I want to get your take on that through line of the seed of the promise as related to kind of kingship and then culminating in, in Christ. I hope that uh, I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. I, I think you're right. I mean, one of the implied um, kind of themes or metaphors alongside kingship is that, I mean, a king has an enemy, right? You, the point of having a king is to bring order and healing and peace because those things are under threat. And so that through line, as you call it, you know, runs right the way through. And notice you know, it's something we maybe didn't emphasize when we talked about land, but the land promised to Israel is not an unoccupied land, right? Um, and that's that's tricky, right? Because, uh, well, first of all, Israelites hesitate even to go in because they have a look through their spies and they, you know, they, they, they lose heart and therefore they have to end up you know, taking 40 years to make a two-week trip. Um, and... And but God does call them to go into a land in order to cleanse it, right? So there's this healing of the land. And why? Well, the Canaanites, I mean, they were doing child sacrifice, right? And so although the, the stories are exaggerated the way ancient Near Eastern things are, so there aren't quite the massacres that that uh, people fear were taking place. Uh, and we know this because they enter a place and it says, that, oh, everybody was killed, but then, you know, 
two lines later, they're talking to the people who are still there. So, you know, it, it, this is just the way people would write about these things. But the, there is a point about cleansing, about kingship that appoints that, 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 or leadership anyway, that, that moves in and, and brings healing and peace to the land and to the people. And the failure of leadership in Israel is not that these things aren't confronted because they will again and again and again kind of go up against, you know, the, this, the, the, the worshipers of Moloch and the, those who do child sacrifice and who have all these kinds of horrible sexual rituals in their worship and, and so forth. This is a thing that happens again and again and again, but their failure in all of that isn't so much that they, they're not willing to confront that, but that they descend themselves into the same problem even as they go about doing it. I mean, this is what the book of Judges shows again and again and again. God will raise up and will fill with his His spirit these leaders, right? And one after the other are worse than the one that, that came before. And they just, they they enter into the, the same thing that they're meant to be healing. So the same thing the serpent introduces, they, they become like you know, the serpent. And that's why that phrase, in those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. Well, they, Adam, Adam and Eve saw what was right in their own eyes, right? They exactly. Looked, they looked and the, they grabbed and they tasted of that, right? The story again and again is what, and, and the realization ultimately is that it's not rescue from political external enemies that matters, but a king has to come that will rescue people from themselves, right? And that's what the later prophets are really going to focus on. I mean, when you're reading Jeremiah, when you're reading Ezekiel, you're reading Isaiah, you're reading about this insight that the problem is inside every human heart, right? And if the law is ultimately to be followed in the way that you know God had asked you know, by forming his gracious, loving, you know, free covenant with this people and asking for it, their their dependence on him in return and their love in return, that that's not an external thing. It's something that has to be written on their hearts, right? So the tablets of stone are replaced with, um, you know, tablets of flesh, you know, in the new covenant. So that looking forward to that new covenant is about a rescue, a king who can come and bring bring healing and peace because these are the, the what, what a king is expected to do. And I, I mean, a perfect example of this that comes to mind is, is obviously, you know, the, the return of, of the king in, in Lord of the Rings, right? You know, I mean, what is the king known for is the, the healing hands, right? And this is what, what Jesus will ultimately, uh, you know, bring as the son of David, as the true king, he brings healing to these people. He brings peace and so forth. But that peace is ultimately not so much construed or to be understood as out there, there's another that needs to be crushed and defeated and they're the problem, but rather in ourselves. So the, so that the, this is the insight in exile, um, that the people of Israel have stripped of land, of king, of temple, and knowing that God is still with them in the fiery furnace. There's that other figure who is with us, God with us, Emmanuel. The insight is that, ah, maybe after all, <laughs> the problem was inside us, not you know, just sort of seeing it in the Canaanites or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or, or whatever. And so this messianic hope comes to to rest in this 
more holistic and total vision of what healing and peace will be all about. And therefore, that kingship you know, is not a mere political thing or a mere military thing. And it's certainly not, as you know, we already read in Deuteronomy there, a matter of acquiring horses and silver and gold and wives, but rather about, you know, healing human beings from inside so that they're no longer doing what is right in their own eyes, right? Mm-hmm. And so all of that can be, you know, reversed. That's what it means to have a king in Israel. So let's bring it to something liturgically. So I, I mentioned that Psalm verse earlier from Psalm 92, but it's the Lord is King. He is robed in majesty. This is something that in the Orthodox tradition, we sing with, with great solemnity, actually every Saturday evening. So the, the Vespers of the coming day of the resurrection, right? The, the, those first. So a lot of these themes are about the resurrection. And when it comes time for the Prochemenon or this, verse that is chanted in refrain before the script the old testament scripture reading we are proclaiming the kingship of yahweh and that he is robed in majesty and 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 in light of all of this you know obviously we as christians would recognize christ as being the king but it's yahweh that is the king or it's christ that is the embodiment of the kingship of yahweh the god of israel and when we say the lord you know lord being that name yahweh you know yahweh is king he is robed in majesty what comes to mind in terms of the theme of the resurrection is something like he's resurrected right his body he's robed in this body of the resurrection and we're proclaiming that on saturday evening and i guess i'll have you comment father on the use of that verse at that point kind of liturgically and how that brings together a lot of these themes that we've been talking about right i mean there's all wonderful series on vespers that we could refer people back to i think that is uh, true we, we do a tremendous amount of detail but i mean to kind of sum some of that up we the, the the vesper service takes us into the heart of what it means you know, to live in a world where people do what is right in their own eyes, right? I mean, uh, if you wanted to sum up the problem that we have, uh, it's that there's this kind of line between good and evil that runs in every human heart. And, um, you know, in that series, we talk about how it's not actually a retelling of the story of salvation from beginning to end, because what it is, it's that ongoing experience of God's faithful, you know, people who, who still descend to the depths in their suffering, in their struggles and so forth. But, but, looking to the light of Christ as we do in the the singing of the gladsome light and so forth and then this high moment of vespers where the the church is illuminated and and God's glory fills the temple what kind of kingship has he brought right it's a it's a, it's a kingship of fulfillment of promises right he he is he's established the world it shall never be moved his throne was established from of old and it's forever lasting it's going it's to the end of the ages this is the kingship that that is there and verses that we don't use in that prokemenon but they're in that psalm right and we actually use them right before uh, liturgy in the prothesis right um it talks about the floods that have lifted up those chaotic waters right that have have come to fight against this kind of uh, of kingship uh and god puts them down right because he's more majestic than the thunders of mighty waters more majestic than the waves of the sea majestic on high is is the lord his decrees are sure and holiness befits his house 
unto the ages of ages forevermore, right? So this the beautiful depiction of the, the king who comes, who brings healing, who, who puts down and, and, and resettles those chaotic waters, which of course is that image. What, what is that image talking about? It's that image of, of the Exodus, right? Of the waters that had risen up and had been pushed back so the people of Israel could be delivered from Egypt and Egypt they were not to go back to according to you know, Deuteronomy. But it's also the image of creation itself, which is this ordering of the waters, the waters of chaos, the waters that, uh, of chaos that erupt from people who do what is right in their own eyes. And the kingship of God, God who becomes king, is the one who settles the chaos and brings healing and peace, you know, to the world. And, and that's our sure hope, right? And it may be, you know, as we go out, uh, we're still experiencing that chaos. Those waters continue to, to thrust about in their, their chaotic activity. But we know the Lord has established the world. It shall never be moved. And that is who our King is. And everything that was hoped for, expected in the prophets and the history of Israel has been fulfilled in Jesus and is being fulfilled as his kingship goes forward, you know, to the world. And so it is indeed a high moment of Vespers. It's a high moment that really should bring peace and comfort and confidence to our lives, knowing that the Lord is King and is robed in majesty. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Yuri Gladio, an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning, and I'm joined on this show by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in liturgical theology. Come connect with us on Patreon with any thoughts and follow-ups about this episode. We look forward to seeing you next time.